In preparing for this series, um, I gave a poll out to several members in this body with a list of questions. I said, fill this out and send it back to me, questions that you think we need to answer, that we need to talk about in this series. And the question we're going to talk about today was the number one asked question on the list. And the question is this, why is there a war between the church and the LGBT community? Why is there a war between the church and the LGBT community? Now, that is going to be the question that we are going to answer today. And obviously, this is a very sensitive, very delicate topic to talk about. And so before we even start answering some questions, we need to set some parameters, some groundwork, some uh, disclaimers on this message. The first is this. Obviously, this message is very serious. And for the sake of this conversation today, there's not a lot of humor. There's not a lot of entertainment value to this because we want to be reverent when we are approaching sensitive topics. Uh, It doesn't do us any good to be crass. We want to be professional. Class always overcomes crass every time. And so with that, we are going to take this very seriously. It's going to be intense. We're going to be looking at a very complex question, and we're going to be trying to give as simple and concise answers as possible. But you need to buckle in because we're going to take this very seriously. The second disclaimer that we need to be aware of today is that this message hits home for all of us. Every single one of us in this room has our own opinions of the morality of the issue of the LGBT community. And every single one of us in this room knows someone very close to us or has a family member who identifies with this community. And additionally, in this room today, there might be people who are questioning their sexuality, their sexual orientation, or their gender. Therefore, my goal today is not to give you my opinion, but to give you a biblical foundation. And here's what I need you to understand. I'm not asking anyone in this room to believe what I believe, and I'm not trying to force anyone into believing what I believe. Regardless of what you or I believe, I want you to know that everyone who seeks the truth is welcome in this church. are welcome to be a part and to attend our services. I don't care if that person's an atheist. I don't care if they're agnostic. I don't care if they're gay or they are a liar or if they stole money or they're an addict or if they're a Christian or they're transgender. Everyone who is seeking Jesus and seeking answers from Jesus is welcome at the table with Jesus. That is the pattern of Jesus's life. Jesus never rejected anyone for searching for the truth in scripture. In fact, he was so friendly with everyone that the religious leaders mocked him and they said he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, having said that, having said that, it is equally important. It is equally important to understand that Jesus also calls everyone to a higher level. And that higher level is called holiness. Jesus calls us to a lifestyle of holiness. He calls us to transform our life from the old pattern to a new pattern that mimics his life. And once I make the decision to follow Jesus, I am making a commitment to leave that old life behind to start a new life following him. And that's two sides of the coin. Everyone is welcome to seek the truth from Jesus, but once you accept that truth, you are then accepting the lifestyle that he calls you to live. And that means that we don't get to live any way that we want. As a Christian, we are submitting to the lordship, the lordship, I want you to think about that word, the lordship of Jesus Christ 
and we are submitting to the pattern of Jesus. So we need to remember as we're approaching all this that the Bible is not a product of human culture. Therefore, it is going to offend all of us at some point. And there is not one issue that's facing our culture today that is more divisive than the question of what does the scripture say when it comes to the LGBT community and the lifestyle. So therefore today, my, my whole message is gonna be coming from those approaches and we're going to be studying the word together. Now, let's just jump into this today. For many of us, we probably know that there is a war going on in our culture when it comes to this issue. When I was growing up, the issue of the day was indeed gay marriage. I remember as a, as a young child and as a teenager, this was the question, and Christians were appalled at the thought of gay marriage happening in our nation based upon their belief that the Bible calls homosexuality a sin. And so in the process, many gay people felt like the church was intolerant and hated them, and as time moved on, the situation only got more and more complicated and complex. And so we moved from from gay marriage to equality to uh, the questions of our gender and our identity. And those questions have just compounded to different things that have been exploited in the media. Should, what bathrooms should people use and locker room issues, all of this is a part of it and all of us are very aware of it. Frankly, we know the issue and we have all felt the tension. Amen? I mean, we feel the tension. Let's just be honest this morning. This is not news to you. You're very aware of it. And in fact, the, the, the reality that I'm even talking about it this morning probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Where are we going with these answers? If we were to be brutally honest, both sides of this debate have exploited and demonized each other. Many churches and Christians have boycotted businesses that support gay marriage in some, in, in very few extreme situations. Some people have even acted violently towards the LGBT community, most notably Matthew Shepard, who was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered in October of 1998 for being gay. On the other hand, many people in the LGBT community have demonized Christians for their belief. Many in that community support free speech as long as you say what they want to hear, and in some and in a few extreme instances, there have even been witch hunts to exploit Christians for their faith and lawsuits, most notably Masterpiece uh, Bakery in Colorado. So you have on both sides of this, you have extremes that have complicated this entire conversation. So obviously what we see is that this is a very volatile and sensitive topic to say the least. And so as we jump into this issue, how do we even approach it? And I believe the best way to approach it is start by breaking this issue down into a series of questions and answering those questions on this topic. And here's why, because this question is so complex that we have to ask the right questions and then we have to have the right answers. It doesn't do us any good to just start getting on Facebook and uh, exploiting our opinions. What we have to do is we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. That's very important for us to understand. We have to know what we believe and we have to know why we believe it. Because when we get into our opinion, then we're going to get in trouble. When we stand on the word, then we allow God to handle the, the outcome of that. 
So before we jump into this message this morning, I just want us to stop for a moment and I want us to pray and just ask God to give us clarity, to give us wisdom, and give us a sermon. Amen? Lord, we just come before you right now. And Lord, as we study this most sensitive topic that's facing so many people in our country, so many people in our lives, maybe even us personally today, Lord, that you just give us wisdom. Lord, you have answered every question that we need answered in your, in your word. And I pray today that we would stand on your word that we trust your word, and Lord, that we would see how your word applies to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. To lead off this morning, we need to answer the most obvious question. Is homosexuality a sin? Is homosexuality a sin? According to scripture, homosexuality is a sin. The Bible is very clear on this topic, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Some scriptures for reference, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, Romans 1.18-32, and 1 Timothy 1.8-10. For sake of time, I'm not going to read all those. You can go home and you can read those scriptures. Those scriptures make it very clear, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Bible calls homosexuality a sin. I want to read you one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, starting in verse number 9, and here's what the scripture says. It says, or do you not know that their unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Let's pause. How many of us are guilty of breaking some of those commandments on that? All of us. All of us. And what Paul's trying to say is all of us were in this predicament, this situation where we were separated from God and we were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All of us fell into that category, but the gospel says, by the blood of Jesus, we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified, and we are not in danger anymore of the punishment of our past life. Why? Because Jesus has already taken the punishment. Now, what I want you to see out of this is that there is no way to read the scripture and take the Bible at face value and come to any other belief than practicing homosexuality is a sin. Now, the question is, why is it a sin? Why is it a sin? There are three reasons why homosexuality is a sin. The first, because the Bible says so. Plainly, the Bible says so. There are five scriptures I just gave you that plainly say that homosexuality is a sin, and there's no other way to read those scriptures than to come to that conclusion of the truth. Now, there have been many who try to take this claim as Christians, and they have tried to uh, uh, say that living a homosexuality lifestyle is okay, and they're trying to twist the scriptures. They're trying to twist the scriptures. There will be people who object and explain away what the Bible says, and there's two popular distortions that you will read about that people claim to say that we're misinterpreting these verses. And the first one is this. Some people say, well, homosexuality is okay because Jesus never mentioned the subject. Paul wrote about it, that it was a sin, but Paul was a man and and Jesus was God, but he never mentioned homosexuality as a sin. At face value, this sounds like a good argument. However, this is a gross misunderstanding of the Bible. We believe the Bible is inspired by God. And so Paul may have wrote the words, but he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus is the word. Therefore, Paul's words are Jesus's words. 
Furthermore, Jesus may have never mentioned homosexuality explicitly because Jesus spoke to sexual sin as a whole. All sexual sin outside of one man and one woman in the context of marriage is sin according to the word of God. And so Jesus didn't mention homosexuality any more than he mentioned having sex before marriage because he didn't need to. It was understood that all sexual sin outside of one man and one woman was sin. Therefore, Jesus did not need to go and start nitpicking everything apart. It was understood. Just as Jesus did not need to tell us, hey, when you get really mad at somebody, don't murder them. Like that was understood. Jesus didn't need to go around and say, hey, when you're short $5, don't steal it from a friend. Why? Because that was understood. Jesus was getting to the heart of the issue. He wasn't nitpicking different sins. And that's really good advice for us. We need to understand that everything we're talking about isn't about practices, it's about the heart. And Jesus laid that out for us. He's saying, look, it's about your heart. Now, Paul had to go in and he had to correct some things because how many of you understand we can mess things up? And so he has to go through some, from time to time. He has to list things because we will try to explain away our own grievances because we don't want to give it up. The other way that people try to distort this is they try to say that the word for homosexuality in Greek isn't really the same word that we have today. Rather, Paul was speaking against pedophilia. Again, this is a gross misunderstanding of Scripture because, again, the Bible makes it very clear that all sexual activity outside of one man and one woman in the context of marriage is sin. So first, homosexuality is a sin because the Bible says so. This is enough because this is our final authority. However, there are further evidences. Second, homosexuality is a sin because this truth is confirmed by the pattern of Scripture. Now, when you look at the biblical truths, when you read something in the Bible, you have, to do, uh, you have to do something. You have to first take it at face value, and then you have to start looking at the pattern of Scripture to see if that pattern is played out for how you're interpreting the Scripture. For example, if we read Jesus and he said, uh, unless you forsake your father and your mother and follow me, you, you, can't, you can't follow me. Unless you hate your family, you can't follow me. Now, if I read just that Scripture... And I start getting on the platform and say, you got to hate your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your kids and leave them all behind or you can't follow Jesus. We'd be like, man, that sounds pretty harsh. Is that true? Well, let's look at the pattern of scripture. And we would know that Jesus was not being literal in that moment. He was speaking figuratively. Why? Because when I look in other places of scripture, I see that as a husband and as a father, I'm required to take care of and provide for my family. I see as a, as a, as a son, I have a responsibility to help take care of my parents when they get into their older years of life. And Jesus even reprimanded people for that. So I know because of what Jesus said, then I look at the pattern that he's speaking metaphorically about our heart and the intention of our heart. So when we look at this truth and we read that homosexuality is a sin, we need to look at the pattern of Scripture to see if that pattern plays out over and over again in the Scripture. And here's what you will see. The answer is yes. The Bible shows us that throughout history, throughout recorded scripture, that every time someone engaged in a sexual act outside of one man and one woman in the Bible, uh, chaos ensued. Let me give you a few examples. Abraham committed adultery on his wife, and it nearly destroyed his family and caused havoc that we're still dealing with today. Judas slept with his daughter-in-law, chaos ensued. Samson slept with prostitutes, chaos ensued. David committed adultery with his best friend's wife, chaos ensued. Solomon had multiple wives, chaos ensued. 
So here's what Scripture is showing us from the pattern, is that there is not one recorded instance in Scripture outside of one man and one woman in the context of the covenant of marriage where God blessed that sexual union. So when you start looking at the Bible, you see that the pattern of the Bible plays out and it interprets this for us. And the only conclusion that you can come to is that only one man and one woman inside the context of marriage is the, is the uh, union that God blesses. Therefore, homosexuality is a sin. Pornography is a sin. Sleeping around is a sin. That's why all these things are a sin. Third thing I want to show you is this. Lastly, homosexuality is a sin because the sexual union in marriage points to intimacy with God. You have to understand that in Scripture, in Bible, marriage always represents intimacy. And that intimacy is a pattern for our intimacy between us and God. Obviously, it's not physical. Obviously, it's an emotional and spiritual intimacy that we have with God. The same word that God uses when it says Adam knew his wife is the same word that talks about how God knows us. It's intimacy. It's intimacy. And so marriage is a pattern and an example between us and God. Notice that sexual union is only supposed to happen inside of the covenant of marriage. The key word there is covenant. It's like a contract on steroids that cannot be broken. When you stand before your spouse and you make that commitment till death does us part, that is a covenant that you're making with them to never leave them, never forsake them. You are there with them. And it's the exact same thing that God does with us. Notice that God only has relationship with us inside of covenant and who initiated that covenant? He did at great cost to himself. And so that's why this issue is so serious because God is trying to say, look, it's this thing of marriage is a picture. It's a representation of how I want to be with you. Therefore, honor it. Marriage is just as much spiritual as it is emotional and physical. So from what we see from scripture, all sexual activity outside of one man, one woman in the context of marriage is sin. And this truth leads us to another question that we need to answer. How does God define gender and sex? This whole, this whole conversation really comes back to sex. So what does God have to say about this? And we have to look at this before we can get into the nuances of homosexuality. Because if you don't understand God's design for sex, then you're never going to understand why he has limited to marriage. So how does God define sex and gender? Well, I want to read to you two passages of Scripture. First is Genesis chapter number 1, starting in verse number 26 through 28. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God said, uh, excuse me, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me read you a second passage of scripture. Genesis 2, 24 through 25 says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Basically, these verses are showing us God's design for marriage, and they're showing us God's design uh, for gender in the context of marriage. And when you put all of this together, something's very clear. God created sex. 
Humanity did not come up with this on their own. God created it and God designed it. And he did it for three reasons. Number one, God created sex for pleasure. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. There was pleasure inside of their union. Number two, God created sex for reproduction. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And number three, God created sex for intimacy because the Bible says that a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That's speaking of intimacy. So God created it for those three reasons to happen in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. It was legally binding, as we said a moment ago. And here's what I want you to see inside of this is that when intimacy happened, there was a union both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that God created a box, all right? And God said, sex is okay inside of this box, but it's not okay outside of this box. Why did God do that? Why did God put restrictions? Why did God put boundaries? Because sex can either bring life or it can destroy you. It can bring life or it can destroy you. It's always more than a physical act. Act. Sex is physical, emotional, and spiritual. It can bring life to a marriage, but outside of a marriage, it can bring death. God said the only safe place, the only safe environment, the only safe relationship is inside of the covenant of marriage. Now, this is very counterculture for us today. It's very counterculture, and this whole concept has really created the foundation and the framework where we have the chaos in our culture today, because most people today said that it's okay to, to do whatever you want as long as there's mutual consent. The culture will tell you that, that sex is safe as long as there's mutual consent. The problem is, is that no one knows how to define consent. Your definition of consent and my definition of consent are two different things, and it's created a huge problem in our culture today. It's led to the Me Too movement where countless women have been assaulted, and countless men said, no, 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 it was mutual consent. And what God is saying is that safe sex is not about consent, but rather it's about covenant. It's a completely different outlook. It's about covenant. It's only safe inside of the covenant of marriage because sex is like a fire. Inside of your fireplace, it's beautiful. Inside of your living room, it's detrimental to your life. Now, with that mindset and with that framework, I want us to remember 1 Corinthians 6 again. I read you where Paul lists all these things. This passage of Scripture defines for us the sexual acts that can burn down our house. And inside of those Lust, pornography, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, all of those things will burn down your house. Now notice that not one is more sinful than the other. It's not like looking at pornography is not as bad as living a homosexual lifestyle. It's all bad. It will all burn down your house. Why? Because it was not in the design that God had for his people. So maybe you're here in this message and you're still hanging on with me. You say, okay, Austin, I'm, I understand the Bible says homosexuality is a sin and I can connect that all, all sin outside of one man and one woman is sinful, but there's a lot of people who identify and there's a lot of people who, who identify and feel a part of the LGBT community. It leads us to our next question. Does God create gay people or transgender people? One of our fundamental beliefs is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and that all human life was created in the image of God. 
Psalms 139, 14, or 13 and 14 says this, For you formed my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The Bible makes it very clear that God formed every single one of us inside of our mother's womb. Life is precious because we are created in the image of God. We bear the image of God. Therefore, we have value and our identity is found in him. Several years ago, Lady Gaga wrote a song to support the LGT community, and she said, Born, uh, it, the song's called Born This Way, God Makes No Mistakes. And that's what a lot of people would claim in our culture today. God makes no mistakes. And Lady Gaga was accurate in her words, but her interpretation of the tooth, truth was wrong. God does not create someone with flaws. In fact, God cannot create someone with spiritual flaws. It's impossible for God to create someone to break his laws. Remember, we are created in his image. Therefore, he cannot create us with sin innately inside of us. He created us with his emotion and spirit and free will. He did not create us sinful. So God does call homosexuality a sin. Therefore, God did not create someone gay or transgender. Why? Because God does not make mistakes with a person at gender. Just as God did not create someone to be a murderer. Just as God did not create someone to disobey their parents. Just as God did not create someone to be selfish. Just as God did not create someone to be, uh, have anger problems or to be a compulsive liar. God did not create people like that. But that leads us to our fourth question. And that question is this, if God did not create someone with the LGBT orientation, then why do people feel gay? Why do people feel transgender? And here's what I truly believe. There was, for a long time when I was growing up, I heard, well, you chose that lifestyle at some point. That's what a lot of preachers would say from the pulpit. Well, you chose that lifestyle. It was your decision. At some point, you made that decision. But I've talked to and heard enough people who are genuine and say, I, I never made that decision. From a young age, this is how I felt. This is how I felt. I don't remember coming to a point where I chose one lifestyle over the other. I have always felt this way. Why is that? Why is that? We have to understand that God did not create people with flaws. And it's impossible for somebody, for God to put flaws in them. But we also have to understand that we are sinful. We are sinful. We know this to be true because all of us have sinned and made mistakes. So what happened? What went haywire? If God creates us in his image, why do we have this natural disposition towards sin? Why do people feel this way from a young age? Here's what scripture says, Psalms 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this passage is poetic, and King David wrote this after committing adultery and murder. And here's what he's saying. I am sinful, I was sinful, and I'm always going to be sinful. God didn't create him sinful, it was his flesh. Even at a young age, he had a disposition to sin. And here's what that means, is that all of us are born into a, a world that is full of sin, and because of our nature, we will fall into temptation and sin. 
Why do certain people feel gay? Why do certain people feel transgender? It's the same reason why we grow up feeling prideful. That's why we are compulsive liars, because sin has had an effect on us and humanity. Genesis 1.1 tells us that God created everything. And Genesis 1 tells us that God created humanity in his image and his likeness. But here's what happened. After the fall, we lost our likeness. I want to read to you a passage of scripture, Genesis 5, 1 through 3. It says this, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in his likeness, male and female. He created them and blessed them and named them uh, man for when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and his image. And his name was Seth. Here's what I want you to see. When humanity sinned, we lost our likeness. See, we still have the image like God. We still have our emotion, our free will, our spirit, all that stuff. But we lost the likeness. We lost the ability to be holy. We lost the ability to always make the right decision. And so what happened was we, we started being born in the image and the likeness of our parents. And, and in that process, we were born sinful. And the enemy knows this. And so at a very young age, he starts lying to us. Jesus tells us in John 8, that the devil is the father of lies. So when you go read about the first temptation, the devil deceived Eve. And when you read about Jesus' temptation, the devil deceived and tried to tempt him, but Jesus overcame. So why do people feel this way? It's the same reason all of us fall into sin. Many people in the LGBT community who ask, though, I have I felt this way longer than I, I can remember. Ever since I was a small child, I felt like I was in the wrong body. Let me ask you a question. Why did you lie when you were five years old? Why did my son, when he was five years old, why did, why did he sin and disobey me? Why did he lie? Why was he mean sometimes? Why was I that way? I love my son. He's good, kid. But all of us, all of us are born into sin, and all of us at a very young age, without us even realizing it, we learn how to sin because we all need a Savior. We all need a Savior. You might be here today saying, well, I get what you're saying, Austin. I get and understand what the Bible says, but it just doesn't feel right. LGBT is about love. Who are people hurting? Why, why can't they just do what they want to do? It's just all about love. And here's my response. God never forces anyone on earth to obey him. We read a powerful verse in Genesis 1. It says that God gave dominion to man over the earth. And here's what it means. God said, you guys have control of this thing, and I'm not going to intervene unless you want me to. That's what it means to have dominion. How many of you have dominion over your house? You're like, what I say in my house happens. Now, the men like to say that, but how many of the wives, you really the ones with dominion in the house, right? Yeah. Yeah, us guys are like, putting our foot down. We're not going out to eat. Next thing you know, right, you're at the McDonald's eating. Why? Because somebody had dominion in the house, and it wasn't you. <laughs> and that's exactly what God's saying. You have dominion over earth. God will not make anyone follow him. God will not make and force anyone to be heterosexual. He will not make anyone accept the rescue of his son. God will not make anyone do that. But what we can never question is God's love. When you look at the cross, God's love is not in question. However, what God does say is this, is that any lifestyle that is contrary to my word 
is not how I created you to live. You went haywire. I died on the cross to fix it. And if you want to follow me, then that requires you to allow me to rewire and reboot your life. You have to get your life right. All of us need a Savior. I need one. You need one. The liar needs one. Everyone needs a Savior. But when you come to him, it means I leave my old lifestyle behind. I leave what I want to do behind. And I submit to the lordship of Jesus. See, we forget about the lordship of Jesus. We like to talk about Jesus as our Savior. And he is. But coming to Jesus means he is Lord. Lords are masters and they have servants. And we don't like talking about that, but we're the servants, he's the master. So what he says goes. When he says, if you want to follow me, this is what you have to do. Then that's what we have to do. And we don't get to debate that. We don't get to negotiate that. We just get to follow. That's what Jesus meant when he said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him pick up his cross daily and follow me. That's all inclusive. If we want to talk about inclusion, that's inclusion. If anyone wants to follow me, anyone's welcome, everyone's welcome. But if anyone and everyone that does pick up the cross, uh, uh, want to follow Jesus has to do something, that is pick up the cross and follow them. What is a cross? A cross is an instrument of death. A cross is an instrument of death. You have to die to your old lifestyle. You have to die to your old way of thinking. You have to die to your old desires if you intend to follow Jesus. And every single one of us have to do that. If we want to be Christians, then we got to stop being selfish. If we want to be Christians, then we got to stop lying. If we want to be Christians, then we got to stop getting drunk on the weekends. If we want to be Christians, then yes, we even have to leave our LGBT lifestyle. Here's what the truth comes down to. Who is the Lord of your life? You and your feelings or God? That's the question every single one of us is going to have to answer, regardless of what our temptation is. Who are we going to trust more? Our feelings or God's word? Jesus has to be Lord. So based off this truth today, I want to answer two more questions. Thank you guys for hanging in there. I know this is very complex. I know this is a very heavy and meaty message but I feel like I don't want to rob you of giving you the full truth. I want to answer two more questions. The first question is this. What should be the Christian's response to the LGBT community? What should be the Christian's response? First, remember that the Bible is always counterculture. We talked about this a little bit last week. The Bible was not written by any human culture. Therefore, it will offend every culture at some point in every season of every people who have ever lived. So we have to be willing to allow the Bible to offend our beliefs. We have to be, we have to be comfortable with the Bible offending our beliefs. It's going to say things that we don't like from time to time. We also have to be comfortable with the Bible offending other people's beliefs. Now, we don't use the word as a weapon. We talked about that last week. We don't find our pet sin that we want to harp on and then go start beating people over the head with it. It's not what this is about. It's about heart change. It's not about behavior modification. Are there people who are practicing a homosexual lifestyle that will not make it to heaven? Yes. But there's also people who look like they have it all together on the outside, but there's so much pride on their heart that when they stand before God, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So we have to understand this is about the heart. And the word is used as a lamp and a light. A lamp for our feet, a light to our path. 
We are to use it to lead people to the truth. Now, we have to understand, though, that when we use it as a light, it exposes things in the darkness and people will not like it. And we have to be comfortable with offending people. And what Christians have tried to do is one of two extremes. Number one, beat people over the head with the truth. Or number two, soften it so much that we're not even giving them the truth. We try to soften the Word of God and we try to apologize for God to try to make God look better. Well, let's, let's not give everybody the whole truth. Let's just kind of soften it a little bit. And then when they get close, we'll tell them the rest of the stuff later. That's a fraud. You're robbing people of the truth, and that's not right. Here's what we have to realize. We do not have to apologize for God. God can handle himself. We as Christians have gotten to a point where we feel like we have to apologize for God and try to make him look better. God does not need a PR representative. God doesn't need good publicity. He can handle himself. He submitted himself to humanity knowing that we would kill him. That's exactly what happened. So we need to stop trying to apologize for God. Instead, we just need to submit to his truth and allow people the same opportunity that we are trying to do, and that is submitting to the word of God. We have to stand on the truth, and we have to stand on the truth in love. As a Christian, you have to stand on the truth in love. For a lot of us, that may mean that people will call us intolerant. It might mean that people demonize us or call us bigots. Listen, you don't have to apologize for the Word of God. You have to stand on the truth, stand on it in love, even when people criticize and mock you for it. The Bible says Jesus came full of truth and grace. You can't have truth without grace, and you definitely can't have grace without truth. And so we have to accept the full counsel of the Word of God. And the truth is always the truth, no matter how it makes you feel. And we need to bring our life into alignment with God's truth. And we as Christians need to carry that truth and that grace and love. So in responding to the LGBT community, every Christian needs to ask themselves, how am I showing love to the lost world? And specifically for this message, how am I showing love of Christ to the LGBT community? And here's some very simple, simple practical things that we can do, uh, all do. First off, we need to be very careful to watch our speech. Now, this is just my opinion. You don't have to agree with this, but Christians love to say we love the sinner, we hate the sin. The problem with that expression is that it doesn't bear the feeling of grace. If I was to walk up to Jake and say, Jake, I, I, I love car salesmen, but I think all car salesmen are crooked liars. Like, does he feel loved in that moment? No, he doesn't. Right? If I walk up to Charity and say, hey, I love musicians, but I hate bands. Right? And I hate people who play piano and sing. Right? Like, did, did that feel loving? No, that doesn't feel loving. So we need to be very careful with how we communicate. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So when we're speaking to people in the world, we need to be thinking, are my words bearing grace that build this person up towards the truth? Do my words uplift people? And yes, do my words even uplift people in the LGBT community towards the love of Jesus? Because if we're not doing that, then we're not following the word of God for our speech. How do I show love towards the LGBT community? Here's another very practical thing we can do. 
feel empathy, and move with compassion. Matthew 7, 12 says, Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught by the law and the prophets. We are treat, to treat people the way we would want to be treated. For a lot of us, we want people to understand how we feel. We want people to empathize with us. Empathy means I understand how you feel even if I don't share those feelings. It doesn't mean that we have to share the same way. It doesn't mean we have to be sympathetic to the cause. It doesn't mean we have to condone the behavior. But what it means is that I understand that you feel a certain way and I empathize with that. So let me ask you this. Let's just put down the brass tacks as it were. If you were sitting in this message this morning and you were wrestling with your sexuality, how would you feel? That's the feeling that you need to think about. If you were wrestling with your sexuality and you didn't know where to get help from and you tried everything not to feel that way and you don't know where to turn to, frankly, a lot of us, we haven't ever had to experience that. So what, how would you feel? What would be the fear? What would be the, the overwhelming anxiety? What would be the weight and the burden and the pressure on your life knowing that this is what's inside of you, but you can't seem to have some relief? How would you feel? Jesus understood that. That's why Jesus had compassion on people. Notice he didn't condone, he didn't, he didn't sympathize, but he had compassion because he empathized. As Christians, we need to understand how people feel because when you understand how people feel, then you can show them compassion and you can share the gospel. But I promise you, the quickest way to shut down the opportunity to share the gospel is through mockery. But when you empathize, then you have an opportunity to present the truth. Jesus had compassion on the lost people, and the Bible says that everywhere people, he went, people gathered around him. But notice Jesus did not hinder his words. He gave them the truth. They still wanted to be around him. Why? Because he had compassion on them. Walk in 1 Corinthians love towards all people. The last question I want to answer, and I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. Okay, Austin, I hear what you're saying. But what should I do if I identify with the LGBT community in some form or fashion? I don't know everybody in this room, and I don't know who may or may not be struggling with different feelings. But here's what I want to tell you. If you are there, and that's where you're at, and you're weighing with this, and you've been wrestling with it, and you've been praying, you've been seeking God, and you can't seem to find any relief, here's some, here's some advice. If you want to be a Christian, then you have to start to accept the truth of God's word regardless of how you feel. The Bible makes it very clear that those who practice homosexuality will not make it to heaven. That is in the scripture. And that's a hard truth. But you have to make the decision. Who is Lord of my life? Me or Jesus? Me or Jesus? I understand that's easier said than done, but being a Christian means that all of us come to Jesus and make him Lord and we start following him we pick up our cross and that is not meant to be an easy calling I think it's also important to understand this that temptation does not define us even if if I'm tempted to steal a pack of gum from Speedy's after church but I don't cave to that temptation does that make me a thief no I'm only a thief when I act upon that temptation. I allow that temptation to manifest in my life. So I believe one of the greatest lies that's told to our culture today is that if you had the feelings 
of being gay or transgender. That is who you are. That is your identity. You might be feeling the temptation. Therefore, that's who you are. There could be nothing farther from the truth. Temptation doesn't define who you are. Jesus was tempted, but he wasn't a sinner. And just because you're tempted doesn't make you dirty. It doesn't make you a sinner, nor does it mean that you are cursed. Furthermore, and most importantly, your temptation is never your identity. It's never your identity. For some reason today in our culture, we have made our sexual orientation our identity. I'm not sure when that shift happened. But our identity isn't in our sexual orientation, it's in Christ. I don't go, and that's one thing that the enemy has used with this issue, to twist it around on people that no other sin has ever done. And it's only been in the last few years. People feel the need to express themselves and have this identity based upon their sexual orientation when you're in the LGBT community. But there's no other thing that's like that. I don't walk up to Zach and say, hey, I'm Austin, I'm prideful. I don't, I don't walk up to somebody else and say, hey, I'm Austin, I stole $500 from somebody the other day. But with this, this one issue, we allow it to affect every aspect of our life and we allow it to become our identity. Our identity is never found in what we do. It's found in who we are. And who we are, according to the scripture, when I surrender my life to Jesus, is I'm a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. I'm a son or daughter of God, and I've been redeemed. Next piece of advice I would give you is I always follow the pattern of Jesus who was tempted. Go home and read it, Matthew 4. Jesus was tempted. 40 days, 40 nights. He was tempted, preparing for his ministry. And through this temptation, he had fasted. He had eaten in 40 days or 40 nights. Sounds miserable, right? Like, I haven't ate since breakfast, and I'm already hungry. He went 40 days and 40 nights, and he had, he had not eaten anything. So the devil comes to tempt him to sin. He says, hey, if you're the son of God, notice that he was questioning his identity, who he was what the devil's doing to a lot of you he's questioning your identity but the devil says to him if you're the son of God turn these stones to bread see the devil is trying to get Jesus to cave to his desires of his flesh he's trying to get Jesus to sin but Jesus replied the word of God he said man does not live on bread alone but by the very word of God and what Jesus was really saying to the devil is you cannot get me to cave to my fleshly desires instead I'm sustained by the word of God. Because Jesus knew that if he caved to his flesh, it would sabotage his purpose. So Jesus trusted the word of God more than he trusted his flesh. And what some of us need to say to the devil is, yes, I, I understand that I have these desires, but I'm not caving to my desires because if I cave to my fleshly desires, it's going to sabotage my purpose that God has put me here for. And I would encourage you to stand upon the word and rely on his grace in the time of your temptation because here's the thing you need to understand about this is that won't be easy Jesus resisted the devil he did not cave to that sin but even after the devil left him he was still hungry and just because you don't fall into your temptation doesn't mean that the desire might not instantly go away 
Maybe it will go away someday. Maybe it never will. But here's what the scripture calls us to do every day. Crucify our desire and trust in Jesus. Will you stand with me this morning?